Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. As you've noticed, as we've worked our way through Matthew, sometimes we've taken on the content of several chapters in one go and just kind of fire hose through it, and other times we've stopped when we've sensed the Holy Spirit directing us to camp on a particular passage, and that's certainly where we find ourselves today in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. As Jesus is about to point out, this is at best another thinly veiled attempt by the authorities of the day to trap Jesus in a no-win situation to discredit him, to get rid of him. In fact, there are three attempts in quick succession in this chapter alone. They can't just murder him, so they have to catch him teaching something that they can twist into sounding like blasphemy, a capital offense, or failing that, at least discredit him before the people. The interesting thing is that in each of Jesus' responses, he doesn't just merely extricate himself or give an excuse, get out of the trap, he actually uses the traps to further the teaching that he's giving. Right away, we see a very strange coalition in this, in this passage confronting Jesus. It's nothing new under the sun, of course, but you've heard the expression, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, here's an example. The two groups mentioned here, the Pharisees and Herodians, were diametrically opposed to each other. The Pharisees strongly resented the rule of Rome over Israel and pushed back against it all the time. The Herodians, on the other hand, supported the Roman occupation. They were called Herodians because they supported the ruling house of Herod, no big surprise, which was in turn a propped up puppet government supported by the Romans in the very first place. For our purposes, you could picture the far left and the far right coming together to fight against someone, Jesus, who wasn't playing by their rules or their labels. So we have these two groups who intensely dislike each other suddenly coming together in order to spring this trap to remove Jesus from the scene. Notice the insincere flattery dripping from their words. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You can almost like, you know, hear them kind of choking on these words. You aren't swayed by others because you know you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, oh great and wonderful one, is kind of the whole thrust of this. What is your opinion on this? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Here's the setup. If Jesus says it's right to pay taxes, they could discredit him with all those who hated Rome and resented the burden. He might even be dismissed as a collaborator with Rome. Do you see how convoluted this is getting? It's basically saying he might be recognized as a Herodian. I mean, they're part of the, they're part of the trap that they're setting here, and they're saying, well, maybe he can be bunched in with us and then discredited. Now, make no mistake here. The taxes were burdensome. Historians believe they were hovering around 50% right at this time. Rome took 50% of the produce of your income and took it away from the country. It went back to Rome. It didn't improve the roads. It didn't do anything locally. It just left. On the other hand, if Jesus said they should resist Rome and refuse to pay the taxes, well, then he could be denounced as a, denounced as a dangerous insurrectionist. In his supreme wisdom, Jesus asked for a coin. 
When it was produced, he asked whose portrait and inscription was on the coin. Caesar's, of course, they reply. And he then gives this wonderful, great, wise comeback. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus lays the foundation for all the teaching that is to follow on this subject in the New Testament. Paul in Romans 13 writes, Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Peter taught, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. The first part of Jesus' answer reinforces Caesar's authority, even when it's unpopular in things like taxes. But the second part that he says draws limits on the authority that Caesar has. Although it's clear from Scripture that the state has a God-given and therefore legitimate authority, the authority of God is always, always, always greater. Therefore, of course, those who know God must worship and obey him, even if in some extreme cases it means disobeying Caesar. Obviously, paying taxes, however, was not one of them. Let me boil this down to what it looks like for you and me. Because we recognize the God-granted authority of government, we should be the very best of citizens. We should obey it in all areas of its legitimate authority. We should obey speed limits, pay our taxes, vote in elections, support worthy civic endeavors, speak well of our rulers, and support and pray for them. But Scripture is also clear that whenever the government violates the moral laws of God as laid out in Scripture, or the government commands us to do something contrary to the revealed law of God, we're to obey God rather than man. I believe we are still to do that as good citizens, being respectful, being peace-loving, loving representatives of Jesus himself wherever we go and the image of God that we bear. We don't get to throw the whole authority thing aside and say none of that authority thing applies anymore because the weight of all Scripture still stands and we're called to obey all of Scripture all of the time. Like with Jesus and the apostles, let's remember too what that time of real persecution, when that time of real persecution comes, that our weapons are to be the same as theirs were. The sword of the Spirit, the Word, not metal swords in our hands, and we should also prepare to face the consequences with courage, just as they did. The phrase, would Jesus, what would Jesus do, still applies here. Okay, that was the first part. That's the introduction, if I can call it that. I can't tell you how many times I've read this passage, and for the first time, one word just leapt off the page at me like I've never seen it before. In fact, there are some translations that do not include this word, but as I've studied with Bible, the biblical scholars and, and have looked at the Greek words that are used here, there is a lot of agreement from those who really studied this that this word, this one word, is meant to be there. On the surface, it might not look like an important word, like it's not a big deal, but to me, I think it is, and I'm gonna tell you why. But first, the word. It's the word back. Have you noticed it before, unlike me? Give back, give back. So what does giving something back imply? Uh-huh that it was given to you in the first place. You didn't create it, it was actually on loan to you or given to you, and now it's time to give it back. So let's carry that thought forward for a moment. Give back to Caesar. 
The implication is that you have something that belongs to Caesar that is his, and it's his to be given back. The government says, pay your taxes, and as citizens of that country, under the rulers, whoever they may be, that is theirs to demand. It's the cost of living in that country. It may be completely burdensome, but pay for the privilege of being in the country is the essence here, and I think we get that. And I'm not going to spend any time at all on it, but there are, there, are, there are benefits that are supposed to be ours underneath and as subjects under a government that, that abides by the limits that God has put in place, like law and order. We benefit from having law and order. We benefit from the protection of human life and personal property rights. We benefit from a judicial system. We benefit by the fact that there is accountability and punishment that comes for those who break the law. All scripture references, by the way, there are sermon notes online, and when I'm ripping through stuff here like this, you can always go to our website, look at the sermon notes, <clears throat> and you will actually get all these references. You don't need to try and you know, type a million words a minute or write fast to get them all down. But we who believe in Jesus have also been granted citizenship in heaven. And Jesus' words in this area also apply to us. Give back to God what is God's. Same implication. We have things from God that are not ours, that he calls us to give back to him. What that is, is very easy. It's everything. God owns everything. He owns every plant, every rock, every animal, every person, and by extension, every government, everything. God owns everything. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. There's no exclusions. He created it. He owns it. But more than that, he sustains it. The Bible tells us in Colossians that God holds everything together. He keeps the planets in line. That's the fact. God owns everything. He owns you. He owns me. He owns this land. He owns this building. He owns the camp. He owns everything because he made it. He owns the raw materials that we use to make everything. But just because God owns everything doesn't mean that it's supposed that it's being used, that we use it in the way that he intended it to be used. Obviously, a lot of things aren't being used the way God intended them to be used when he created them, which introduces us to the subject of the day, stewardship. Stewardship is the responsibility of managing some assets or affairs or property of someone else. Basically, it's to be a caretaker of something that doesn't belong to you. Stewardship is managing something that isn't yours. The key word in the definition is the word management. The word steward simply means manager. It's the old English word for manager. Stewardship is the second greatest theme in the Bible. It is taught all the way through, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Jesus talks more about stewardship than he does about heaven or hell or prayer or any other thing. Over half of his parables are about stewardship. In fact, one out of every six verses in the Gospels has something to do with stewardship. God made us to be the caretakers of the world that he created, to be the managers, to be the stewards of all the resources that God placed here. Our basic problem still today is that we forget why we were created. We forget our purpose. 
Man goes out and manages what God has given and created, and pretty soon, man starts to think he owns it. But he's just managing it. We try to trade places with God. We start acting like the owners, as if we created the world. We start using words like my and mine, my life, my plans, my possessions, my time. Who gave all of that to us? God did. Ownership. God said, I'm putting you on this earth and you get to use the world and the resources that I've placed in it. You get to manage it all. You get to enjoy it all. But never forget, I own it, I made it, and I keep it going. I read about a church in the south that was going, uh, growing so fast it ran out of parking space. They went across the street to a supermarket that was closed on Sundays conveniently and, and made a deal with the owner of the supermarket to use their parking lot. The owner of the supermarket said, you absolutely, by all means, can use the parking lot 51 Sundays out of the year. But on the 52nd Sunday, I'm chaining the parking lot off. <laughs> Church people said, why? We don't understand. Why would you let us use it 51 times and then chain it off for the 52nd? And he said, and you're already there with me, right? Because I never want you to forget that the parking lot belongs to the grocery store, not the church. That's what tithing is all about. God says, I just don't want you to forget where it's all coming from that I'm the source of your blessing. I'm the creator. God owns it all. We're just managers. We're not the owners. We get to manage it. We get to enjoy it. We get to use it. We get to develop it, but we don't own it. It's God's. God, God in, God's intention was for man to rule over these things. But what happened? We got it all mixed up and we reversed it. Now those things rule over us. We're possessed by possessions. God says it's foolish to make your number one goal in life simply the acquisition of things. I'm just loaning them to you for a short time anyway. You can use them, you can enjoy them, but then you're going to die and move into eternity, and I'm going to loan them then to somebody else. You don't own anything, really. You don't get to take any of your possessions with you. Everything is on loan. And there's one specific area where God seems to know that we will have our toughest struggle with and where a lot of the stewardship in Scripture speaks directly to. <clears throat> so let me ask you as a way of introducing it, what one factor, if I just walked up to you in the street and said, what one factor would most improve your quality of life? When you think of happiness and fulfillment in your life, what is the single biggest thing lacking in your life that in your estimation would make all those things that you hope and dream for become a reality? I thought I had a shot at it 16 years ago this past August. We were in Windsor, Ontario to watch our oldest son, Matt, play in the Canadian Junior Baseball Championships. And right then was when that, the biggest blackout that's ever happened in North America hit. That was very eerie, very weird. But that's not what I remember the most when I reminisce about the trip. In fact, it was not at all about anything that happened on the trip at all. What I remember most is something that happened here while we were gone. Little did we know 
that while we were watching the freighters negotiate the river in the pitch dark between Windsor and Detroit, our ship came in at home. No kidding, while we were gone, Safeway made one of its draws from those who make, uh, made purchases of their soft drinks. You just, as you bought them, you just automatically were entered, and we won. We won a car. True story. So I truthfully can't say I've never won anything. One minor detail, though. We weren't home to accept it. Two, tame, two times they tried. Lauren Pearson, if you will just come forward, you can claim this gift. Two times. We're not home yet. So when we get home a week later, we get the message and call in, but it turns out in this game, two strikes and you're out. Now, of course, we're a little disappointed, right? But after some moments of reflection and medication, we, of course, we of course realized that we had lost something that in truth we had never actually had, right? Besides, it was probably a Hyundai. Sorry, please, no letters. I'm just being honest here. Remember, this is back like 16 years ago. I'm sure there are much better cars now. Besides, we said to ourselves, there's probably a skill testing question which we won't have an answer for in the five seconds they give us. Like, what is the square root of 13,503, right? But no. There was no skill testing question, and the car turned out to be a brand new special edition Volkswagen convertible bug with a list price 16 years ago of $37,760. So you know what happens next, right? Oh, you didn't even have to take the car. You could have taken the money instead. $37,760. We could have just gone for the money, right? What could we have done with all that money? I thought, well, I'm going to give the first 10%, 3,776 bucks to God. I'll give a couple of thousand to a Kenyan orphanage we support and our missions partners. I'll give some money to World Vision, Boy Scouts, the Wildlife Federation, the political party of my choice, and church members who are nice to me and give me small gifts. <laughs> After the church service, one day a little boy told the pastor, when I grow up, I'm going to give you some money. Well, thank you, the pastor said. Why? Because my daddy says you're one of the poorest preachers we've ever had. <laughs> but wait a minute. I'm worth 37,700 bucks. I'm going to break out of my Scottish heritage. I'm going to become the most generous person you have ever seen in your life because I can afford to be generous now. But the truth of the matter is, I'm lying to you and trying to convince you that I'm going to overnight become this outrageously generous person. Because what the Bible says about the way we are is that no matter if we have a little pile of money, a medium pile of money, or a big pile of money, we are going to be about as generous with whatever we have as our heart allows us to be. Furthermore, Jesus was fond of saying that a person's heart and their treasurers, their treasures, what they worship, are inseparably linked. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. Where what your heart is passionate about, those are the treasures you're going to invest in, whether you're worth 11,000, 111,000, or 11 million like me. Yeah, right. What you truly worship, what your heart is passionate about, will determine where your money goes. So, of course, the question goes begging. 
What are you passionate about? If your heart is working right, you will be generous if you have a little or a lot. In the time left to us, I want to look at what the Bible really says about giving. Why should we give to God? Because God needs the money? Hardly. Because God's poor? I don't think so. Because God wants us to be poor? I don't think so either. The two main reasons? First, he wants us to remember to keep him first. It's the first commandment. He wants it to represent our priorities. Do you think of me first? Do you give to me first? Do you love me most of all? Proverbs says, honor the Lord by giving him the first part of all your income, and he will fill your barns to overflow. God tells us if we honor him with the first part of our income, right off the top, out of gratitude for what he's already given us, for what he's given us to manage, and in faith trusting him to take care of us for tomorrow and the future, he promises to bless us back. If we don't give to God first, then we're really saying we don't really trust you, God, in your way of provision and your management structures here. We're going to actually think you won't fulfill your promise, and therefore we're going to take it on ourselves. Secondly, God wants us to give because of the transformation that takes place inside of us. For instance, giving makes us more like God. God is the perfect giver. The Bible says God so loved the world that he what? That he gave. He loves to give. Everything you have, he's given to you. God says you're most like me. You are most Christ-like. You're most godly when you're being generous and giving to other people the way that I give to you. That's why it makes God happy. That's why he loves it when we give. See, the essence, the essence of Christian living is giving. If you're going to be like God, if you want to bear his image and be like God, you're going to learn to become a giver. Giving also draws us closer to God. The Bible says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is also. We've talked about that. Wherever I put my money, that's where my heart is. If I put my money into entertainment, that's where my heart is. If I put my money into my house, that's where my heart is. Car, you name it. So it follows that if I give my money to God, I'm communicating to him and to all those around me exactly where my heart is. It's with God. God says our giving really reveals how much we love him. We say we love God, but our giving really shows whether we actually do or not. We usually want to give God everything else except our wallet. God says your giving proves how much you really love him. It proves the sincerity of your love. And I will never be like Christ until I learn to be generous in every area. Giving also is the antidote to materialism. That just makes sense, doesn't it? We live in a very materialistic culture. Advertisers are not even subtle about it anymore. They just come out and say it straight out. You can buy happiness. Just buy this car, you will be happy. Just buy this, you'll be happy. And the ad tells us this, so it must be true, right? You can buy happiness. This will make you feel really, really good inside. Who doesn't want to feel good inside? The fact is, things can bring pleasure and happiness. The problem is, it's temporary. It's just for a little while. I mean, you just have to watch kids open a gift on, on a birthday or, or Christmas and, and then bring out another gift and see how temporary the first one was. 
If you get a gift, you're happy about it, but it's temporary. It doesn't last, and after a while, the thrill goes away and the excitement fades. It's fun for a while, but happiness doesn't last. We want the bigger model, the better model, the nicer model. We've got to have more, right? The monster of more. Solomon, who tried to tame the monster of more, said, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. Andy Rooney, who used to be a commentator on a news show in the, in the U.S., said, having enough is nowhere near as much fun as I thought it was going to be when I didn't have any. I saw a sign that said, when I first started working, I used to dream of the day that I would earn the salary I'm now starving on. See, there never seems to be enough. Sure, it will make you happy, but it's temporary. Is there an antidote? How can you live in a materialistic world and not be a material girl? Paul has the answer. Your trust should be in the living God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Use your money to do good. Paul says it's okay to enjoy life, but true living comes from giving. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. The only antidote to getting, 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 and getting more is to give, 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 and give more. It makes us more like God. It's the antidote to materialism. Giving also strengthens our faith. Did you note the the beginning of that statement from Paul there? Your trust should be in the living God who richly gives us all we need. In the Old Testament, God instructed the people to do what was called tithing. That is to give 10% of their income as an act of faith. The word tithe simply means 10%. Why 10%? (laughs) I don't know. That's what God said. He could have said 50%. He could have said 80%. He could have said 90%. But obviously, he doesn't need our money. He doesn't need your money or mine. He doesn't need money. He's after something else from us. It wasn't so much supposed to be a legalistic or mechanical thing as it was meant to ensure that God's people continually remembered who was first in their lives. God does something unusual. He gives the people a kind of dare. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I don't know of any other place in the Bible where God uses this kind of language. God knows how stuff gets a hold of us, and it's kind of like he issues a dare here. He says, I know that giving isn't going to make much sense to you until you actually start doing it. So God says, I dare you to start. I dare you to tithe and see what happens to your life as you become a giving, generous person. There are more promises in the Bible regarding giving than about any other specific thing. Just try it and see if you don't end up receiving blessings of many kinds too much for you to measure. And I'm sure we could just have a parade of people up here saying, I've tried it and it's absolutely true. Giving strengthens and stretches and tests our faith and brings us joy and freedom and a generous spirit. It's the essence of who God made us to be. 
You may have to grow into it. Many of us are at a place financially where we can go and should go considerably beyond the 10% figure. That percentage comes from the meaning of the word tithe, as I've said. It refers to that first tenth of the people's produce or income that was owed back to God for the temple service back in the Old Testament. It was to pay for the temple services and other obligations. God issues this warning through the prophet Malachi because this was not being done. Oh, they were undoubtedly making small, irregular contributions to the temple, but they had not given the whole tithe, and they had certainly not given what little they did with the right motive. Here's the thing. Nowhere in the New Testament are believers instructed to give a specific tenth of their income to the church. But on the other hand, it does not specifically remove it either. Although the word tithe isn't mentioned in the New Testament, giving a sum of money in keeping with your income absolutely is. There's two principles at work here. One is that God hasn't changed. He's still the same God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Putting him first and giving him a portion of your income back to him still is in play. It still remains. The second principle is that in moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the obligations and intentions are not erased. They are actually heightened. They move from acts of regulation in the Old Testament to the higher calling of acts of love in the New Testament. Not just doing it because God told you to do it, but because in response to his love, in response to his provision, you want, you want to give back to him as much as you're able. It says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. It's a deliberate decision based on prayer and planning. You give because you thought it out. You planned this. You decided it in your heart. If I can put it another way, it used to be that it was a hard and fast 10% tithe to the Lord in the Old Testament, but now, now it's a question. It's all yours, Lord. All of it's yours. You own everything. How much of your money, your resource, do you want me to keep? Because the rest is yours. How much do you want me to live on? The rest is yours. Here's my 10% as a foundation to start, God, but you've blessed me with so much, I want to give you more as an offering, a love offering, as a, a, a freely I received, freely I'm going to give kind of thing. Here's my gift offering of another whatever. I know some of you have gone progressively up the gift ladder so that some of you are giving well over 50%, and that's fantastic. I want to say a word, though, especially for those of you who are starting out financially. Maybe you're a student or early in your adult life, either as a single person or a young married couple. As hard as it is to believe, I've been there. I know. You are going to be tempted, I'll tell you, you're going to be tempted to think, I don't or we don't have enough money to give to the Lord right now. He'll understand. But later on in life, when I have more, I'll start or will start doing it then. Anybody in this room with me who is 30 years of age or older, tell me if you think that's a good idea. It's so not a good idea. On average, I'd say it works about 0% of the time. There is an illusion that says, if I had more, then I'd be generous. If I had $37,700, oh, wow, then I'd be generous. 
is simply not true. And it's been proven over and over and over again. Here's what my wife Jennifer and I found. If we thought things were tight and we paid all the bills first, there never was any money left to give to God. But when we stuck to the principle that God is going to get the first 10% at least before anything else gets theirs, whether it's in times of plenty or in times of want, in great times or bad times, God has always, and I mean this, always seen us through because we honored him first. And he says, he who honors me, I will honor. Giving is an investment also for eternity. Paul said in Timothy, you should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, you will be storing up your treasure as a good foundation for the future so that you may experience true life. Jesus said you store up treasure in heaven and you do it by giving. He says when I give to somebody else, God accepts that as like it was a gift to him. I'm storing up treasure in heaven. Some people are going to get to heaven, I once heard the story said, and say, God, where's my mansion? And God's going to say, uh, sorry, it's that little shack over there. That's all the building material you sent ahead. <laughs> Are you storing up treasure in heaven? Giving blesses us also in return. This is the, the, the crazy thing about giving to God is that we get blessed back. It should never be our motive, but it's amazing how he gives back. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Whatever you give out, you're going to get back. If you're generous with criticism, you're going to get a lot of criticism back. If you're generous with gossip, you're going to get gossip back. If you're generous with encouragement, you'll get encouragement back. It's the law of sowing and reaping. If you're generous with your money, you're going to get resources back. It's a law of life. Giving is not a debt we owe, it's a seed that we sow. It's not an obligation, it's an opportunity to build our faith and be blessed in return. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive, but we, didn't, we don't believe that verse really, I don't think. If we did, we'd give more, but he's saying that it really feels good to give. Have you ever heard anybody say you ought to give till it hurts? I suspect you've heard that. No way, that's not right. You ought to give until it feels good. You ought to give until it really starts to turn the love pump on. The most generous people I know are frankly the happiest people I know. The root word of miserable, after all, is miser. The more I hold in, the more stingy I am with my time, with my money, with my tithe, with my effort, the more unhappy I'll be. Jesus said the way to happiness is not to amass personal wealth, but to give. Four ways to get the most out of giving. First, and you've probably heard all of these before, give willingly. There's a church in Minneapolis area, I kid you not, a church that came to the end of the year and had a financial shortfall and brainstormed. How can we motivate the people to give more? And this is what they did. At the end of their offering, it's their custom now to pull one offering envelope out of the basket and whoever it was that had given in that particular envelope got twice back the amount that they put in. <laughs> True story, don't ever look for that happening here. <laughs> See, giving is a matter of willingness not wealth. It's a matter of attitude, not amount. It's a matter of opportunity, not obligation. 
King David said it this way, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity and all these things I've given willingly and with honest intent, and I've seen how with joy, how willingly your people here have given to you. Paul said, for if the willingness is there, your gift is acceptable according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. He's not saying equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. It's the willingness that makes the difference. And we are also to give generously, as we've spoken about already. If you really want to be the kind of giver that God is pleased with, give generously. David epitomizes this in 1 Chronicles. He says, with all my resources, I've provided for the temple. I've given over and above everything. And he shows that he completely understands the proper attitude in giving. In verse 14, he goes on, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Both Mark and Luke record that right after the passage we're looking at today, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were, were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Paul even describes the believers in Macedonia as begging him to take more offering. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. On their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. Can we not take another offering? I haven't actually ever heard that here. Can we not take another offering? Give generously. Give joyfully as well, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word in Greek is the word we get hilarious from. Are you hilarious when you give? Or do you say, oh no, here comes the basket again. But you just can't ignore something you see that God talks about 2,142 times in Scripture. More than praying, believing, loving, give joyfully. In the New Testament time, they got excited when they had offering. They were hilarious when they give. I've been down into Latin America, and let me tell you, there is hilarity, there is joy in the giving. They start dancing. They just, they all come up to the front, and they put their offering in at the table at the front, and they're singing, and there's dancing, and you're not sure it's ever going to end. Joyful givers because they want to be like Jesus. I saw a bumper sticker once that said, tithe if you love Jesus, anybody can honk. <laughs> I have a feeling they're joyful givers. And finally, give thankfully. The authorship is unclaimed for Psalm 116, but most think it was David. And you can see the same thread here. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? Giving is an opportunity to give back to God just a small portion of all that he's given us to steward, to manage for him. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Once again, let me remind you, this so isn't about money. God does not need our money. He wants what it represents to us. He wants you and I. 
He wants our lives lived out in love and commitment to him. We give not because God needs it, but because we need to give. Because of what it does to us. It keeps us from being selfish. It keeps us from being Scrooges, from being self-centered and thinking that we're, we're, we are our own bosses. We made it. It's ours. The world revolves around us. We give because we've come to realize that, that God would understand that we would not be alive if it weren't for him. We have no hope of eternity without God. We have no forgiveness without God. We wouldn't have anything that we enjoy, health, family, provision, career, you name it, without God. We wouldn't have anything. So God, we just want to give something back and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Teach us to be more like you and be good givers. Our closing prayer is David's today. Agree with his words as I pray them in the presence of all who are gathered here. We're not going to have a closing song. I'm going to ask you to stand. So let's make David's words our words. Let's pray this prayer of thanksgiving to God. Would you join me? Bow your heads and close your eyes. Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks. We give you praise. And we praise your glorious name, Jesus, for it's in that name we pray. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.